Good morning, everyone. It's the last Wednesday in June, and that means that we are finishing up our Summer Philippians series. I'm very glad that you are here with me this morning. Um, if you've been with me the last three weeks, you know that Philippians has been a really excellent study. Um, I've enjoyed the comments and the questions that we've been getting, and I really hope that this has been a gift, right? Kind of a blessing as we are in this weird time um, that we actually get a chance to remember what's most important, um, focus on what God would have us focus on, um, and we really get a taste of that and Paul's opinion of what that really means in this fourth chapter of Philippians. And so glad that you are here um, today. A quick reminder that this is live, and I want your feedback and your engagement. Um, so first off, let us know you're here. Make a comment below or to the side, depending on what platform you're using. Um, let us know who you are, where you're from. Maybe say hi to some friends. Um, use this as an opportunity to safely, digitally, distanced, connect with one another. This is great. Um, in addition, because this is live, I want to engage with your questions and your comments. So as you know, please make your comments or ask your questions in the comments field. And Monica Rosser, as she has these last few weeks, will be moderating those comments and she'll let me know um, when questions get asked. Um, and so if you would like to ask a question, do so there or send her an email. She'll put her email address down in the comment field so that you're able to send her an anonymous question um, that you would like answered. So excited about this. And if you are going to be traveling this year, I mean this summer, or just want a little bit of extra connection, a reminder that on our website, stmichael.org slash RBS, there are lots of ways that you can go back and listen to lessons over these last few years um, that I hope will be a gift to you and kind of impact you on your journey. I've had multiple people send me a note just in the last week saying that they've gone back and re-listened to lessons from, say, two, three years ago, even though they were there, um, and that that really has been great, a real gift to them. So a reminder to go to stmichael.org slash RBS and see some of those lessons there. All right. So we are in the fourth chapter of Philippians. Let's start with a prayer and we will jump in. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks for bringing us together this morning and we ask that you empty us, help us to put down all those things that weigh on us. Let us set them aside and make space for your spirit to fill us up that in this next hour we can be blessed and refreshed and renewed by your spirit, the work that you are doing in the world through us, and that we may be given courage to continue to do what we can do to help extend your kingdom here on earth. As we have been over these last few months in particular, we pray for those who are sick, those who are ill, those who may be even close to death, those who have died recently than those people we love and see no longer. Lord, be with them, be with those who care for them, surround them, and uplift them with your love and your presence. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So last week, we have a few um, questions or comments I didn't get to. And so I'm going to jump in there because there are a few good ones here. Um, we're going to start. Steve asked a question that really is about grace. Um, grace and works and predestination, <laughs> which is, of course, a very easy topic. Um, so Steve's question basically says everyone does not get grace, correct? So I'm going to flip that just to say, does everyone actually get grace? Um, and what I want you to know is that there is, there are nuanced differences between kind of grace and love in this sense of salvation. Um, I'm going to start with predestination. That's kind of an easier one. Um, we are not predestined to make particular choices. I will say that we are created to desire God, that God creates us. And in that creation, we are made to want to be with God. That is different slightly than being predestined to make certain choices. Now, there are certain Christian traditions that differ with this. Um, there are certain traditions that 
talk about God's all-knowing plan for all of us, um, for the world, and that we are effectively just kind of working out God's plan, that is okay. Um, there are traditions that talk about a predetermination or a predestination, which are kind of basically the same thing. They're not really, but for our purposes, just say that's the same thing, which effectively says if we're meant to be Christian, we will be. If we are meant to be chosen to be saved, to be with God, then we will be. And if we aren't, then we won't be. And so effectively, the good in the world that good people put out, they're meant to. And the bad in the world that bad people put out, they are meant to. And we are effectively in this cosmic battle of good and evil. That's okay. <laughs> um, what, I, what I want you to know about me. How about we'll start there. Um, first, I am a simple priest. I have some ideas. Um, there are much smarter people than me who get lost in the minutiae and the complexity, and that is super. What I want you to know is that in my experience, we have a choice, and we always have a choice. God does not force us to choose. We have free will. If we do not have free will, and by free will I mean genuine Free will, not the kind of free will where God knows what we're going to do anyway. God has already planned what we're going to do. And so God just kind of waits for us to make a choice. Not that kind. I'm talking genuine agency where we can choose or not. To me, if we do not have that, there are lots of ripple problems. You know, the problem of evil is real. The problem of bad things happening in the world is real. We know bad things happen. I believe evil is real. We can choose God or we can choose the absence of God. By choosing the absence of God, by choosing not God, we allow evil to begin to corrupt our choices and our actions. Now, we are not perfect. We cannot be perfect now. But through God... We can be made perfect over time and with God. So there is this weird, mysterious unknown where at some point we believe that life continues beyond what we see and that in that continuance, through faith, we are made whole. We are actually made perfect with God. Um, that's not something we do on our own. That's not something we can achieve in this life. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And for me, the choices we have with our own free will are the choices that help us move closer and closer to God. So if you think of this as a continuum, God's over here, nothing is over here. We want to be moving this way. And we all find ourselves in the continuum in different places, at different phases of our life. Certain events in our life can shift us hard one way or the other. But in general, the hope is that we're moving closer and closer to God. We cannot do that very well on our own. That's why we need one another. That's why community matters. That's why being Christian on your own is just not a good idea. I am not exactly nailing down Steve's question. Um, what I want to say is I do not believe there is predestination I do believe that we all have a choice and we all receive God's grace. Whether we choose God or not, whether we're moving in the right direction or perhaps the wrong direction, God's grace is constant and God's grace is for every person. Every person is made in God's image. Every person is a child of God. Every person is loved by God. And that love is God's grace poured out on us for no reason that we can claim, all right? So in, enough, in other words, nothing we've done, nothing we will do will either increase or decrease God's love for us. And I hope that that is not frustrating. You know, for a lot of people who struggle and try to make good decisions all the time, that can actually be a little offensive because we kind of want bad people to get what they have coming. 
that's just not God's economy. That's not the way that God's love works. That may be the way our love works, but that's because we're human and imperfect. And what we see is encouragement from people like St. Paul who try to nudge us to be more like, what does Paul say? Have the mind of Christ, to be more Christ-like. Over and over and over again, he hits that same drum. And it's because if we don't strive for that, we're kind of left in our own mess. And we are human and we're messy and we will not do this right. And we need God. And we're going to see that a bit more clearly in chapter four. So sorry, Steve, um, not exactly perhaps the answer you're looking for, but I do think that that's important for us because we need to know that we've got a choice. I, I kind of base everything on a choice. We can always choose and choose better. Okay, so let's jump on into chapter four. As a quick reminder, Paul is in prison, not in Philippi, but he is writing to the church in Philippi, to the Philippians. Philippi is in kind of northeast Greece. And so Paul's relatively close. Maybe he's in Ephesus. Maybe he's somewhere else in Greece. We're not 100% sure. Um, but Paul is in prison somewhere, and Epaphroditus has come from the community in Philippi with a message, with a gift from the Philippians. And Paul's writing back to them with gratitude and encouragement and with warmth, right? We've noted before that Philippians is a very warm book. There are other letters, or warm letter, I should say. There are other letters that Paul writes where he's kind of annoyed. And he's a little aggressive, and that's just fine. Philippians is not that letter. Philippians is a big old loving hug. And so we're getting to the end, and we're going to have a bit, um, a few revelations here that I think kind of put everything together. So we're going to jump in with chapter 4, verse 2. So go ahead, check your Bibles, open them up. Chapter 4, verse 2. Let's begin. Paul writes, I urge Yodia. And I urge Sintic to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes. And I, also, and I ask you also, my loyal companion, help these women, for they have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. And we'll pause there. This is the first of four sections that we're going to do in chapter four. And I forgot to tell you what the four sections are, so just pause for me. We're going to start with section one, which is these verses I just read, and I'm calling this Work It Out. Section two, Celebrate God. Section three, The Secret Strength. And section four, True Gain. All right, so Work It Out, Celebrate God, Secret Strength, and True Gain. So we're going to start with Work It Out. And you can probably read between the lines, it's not that complicated, to see that these two women... Um, whose names are just impossible to pronounce. So just go with, we're going to go with E and S. Um, e and S are in a fight. They are not getting along. And Paul says, they have been loyal companions. They have struggled beside me in the work of the gospel. So these are good ladies. They have done excellent work. And E and S are in some kind of falling out. They're having a fight. Paul wants to say, publicly to the whole Philippian community, ENS have got to figure this out. They've got to work it out and get back together because what unifies them is so much better than what divides them. And holy mess, is this not something we get, right? I mean, we are church people mostly. If we're not active church people right now, then we probably have been in the past. And I think that for many Churches almost represent this kind of, of weirdness where you can come together and you can be so committed and so passionate and so, um, so faithful in making good, selfless choices that we can almost, in that strange way, become so very self-righteous where we know we are right, we've got the best way to do a thing, and everyone else is making the wrong decision. And even though we may be polite, and we don't really say that out loud most of the time, we might be thinking it, and occasionally we're going to do a little thing 
that's kind of passive-aggressive, or maybe we say a phrase in the wrong way, or we kind of make something accusatory, and then all of a sudden, we've done an offense, and a person gets defensive, and then we kind of go, boom, right? And in a respectable, polite church, all of this is done under the radar, right? It's all that little passive-aggressive stuff, and backbiting, and small talk, and um, rumors and whatever, we rarely have a big fight. Now, I'll be honest, I love a big fight. I think they're so fun. But we don't often get that in church. And we kind of see here that Paul knows exactly what this is like because E and S are having a little fight. What Paul does here is pretty remarkable. He sees that these two women are good and they've done good work. And they're obviously having a fight. And rather than Paul saying, hey, let's pray that we don't bother each other, or let's pray that we will forgive one another, or some kind of passive thing, Paul calls them straight out. In a letter that will presumably be read publicly in that church, Paul says, hey, those two are having a fight, and they should not, and they should work it out. And in a sense, Paul is challenging these two women to be examples for the rest of the community. I mean, I hate to call it a scarlet letter because it's not quite that, but what it really is is Paul claiming what he believes, which is we are unified in this mission. Do not think that the things that divide you, that small moments where you might feel a little embarrassed or challenged or threatened can ever be as big as what brings us together in Christ. And he could have opted to say, I hear that some people are not quite getting along, but he doesn't. Paul names them. Think about how that would feel for you. Think about how if you were in a squabble, because Lord knows we wouldn't say fight, if we were having a disagreement or some unpleasantness and someone called us out publicly, we would be pissed. Ooh, we would not like that. But in a sense, as Christians, in our Christian community, we hope for and ascribe to and commit to being better than that. Paul really leans into this idea that we are better than whatever the world would have us believe we would be. We are becoming and transforming into Christ-like people. And that means no squabble or disagreement can keep us truly separated for good if we have the mind of Christ. Mm, that's hard stuff. Disagreements that fester and divide us are just useless. There's too much work to do. There's too much good gospel work to do. And so perhaps all of us, at some point in our lives, understand this. Maybe you right now understand this. Is there someone that you're kind of having a fight with? Because if there is, and you're sharing this kind of Christian identity, I think Paul would implore you, and so do I, to go fix that, because it's not worth it. There's too much good to do being left undone. Don't let something small get in the way. All right, my friends. That's the end of the first section. Pretty straightforward, um, but a hard word to hear. So, reminder that I'd love questions or comments, so make them down below, um, or tell a story, or how about solve a disagreement right here with all your friends? Wouldn't that be great? I'm sorry, I tried to kind of think of two people that I could call out right here in public on Facebook and YouTube to go resolve their conflict, but I couldn't think of any. Aren't you glad? <laughs> all right, let's go on to the second section. So this one this one talks about rejoicing in the Lord. So let's look at just verses four and five right now. This second section I'm calling Celebrate God. Let's look at verses four and five. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. 
All right, we'll stop right there. We're going to keep going under this section, but I just want to take those first two verses, four and five. We know this passage, right? Even if you didn't know it came from Philippians 4, 4, you've heard, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. This has been written in poetry. This has been written in hymns. It's a great line because what Paul is saying is party, celebrate, show your faithfulness. We use this word rejoice, and rejoice is good, um, but rejoice can be translated in a few different ways. All of the other options basically point to something public, all right? The word rejoice can kind of have a um, personal, emotional connotation, um, kind of like joy, right? When someone says have joy or they are joyful, often that's a feeling, that's not what Paul's getting at here. Paul says rejoice. He's not just talking about a feeling. Yes, the feeling is important. Have the feeling, but the feeling is meant to be expressed out loud. In essence, Paul wants us to go and do and show this rejoice on the inside. Paul wants us to celebrate because when we celebrate, physically express the joy we feel, we influence those around us, whether it's in our community who might also then rejoice and celebrate, or it's the people looking from the outside in who say, I want some of that. I want some celebration. I want some joy. And wouldn't it make sense that right now in the middle of our crazy world, we're getting this kind of message from Paul, rejoice in the Lord always. And just to make sure you understand, again, I say rejoice. Paul is not being unclear here. He is repeating himself to make sure we get it. Nothing in this world can actually keep us from that kind of rejoicing unless we decide that it keeps us from rejoicing. All right? That, that is the truth. But that's not all. Because then we get verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Interesting. Paul says, celebrate and be gentle. Gentleness is an interesting word. That word that says, let your gentleness be known to everyone, that is translated differently depending on the context throughout the New Testament. And it can mean words like gentle or kind or tolerant or humble. That same Greek word can be translated multiple ways. So if you kind of put together this sense of kindness, gentleness, humility, tolerance, all of that puts a particular parameter around the sense of rejoice. So this is not cheap, shallow rejoicing. This is very intentional rejoicing. Rejoicing that claims humility Rejoicing that is tolerant and inclusive. Rejoicing that is gentle. And for someone like me, that's important to note. Because for me, rejoicing can look like this, you know, extroverted schmear all over everything, right? Like this explosion of crazy all over everybody. No, that's not really what Paul is saying. Paul is saying rejoice, but with the sensitivity to note that there are people around whose joy will be painful and whose joy will be fragile and whose joy may be through tears, and yet that joy is true. And so an example of how we may do this is, you know, in under normal circumstances, we have a lot of different ways to worship on a weekend at St. Michael. And some of those ways are what I like, which is like the big parade, right? It's banners and streamers and music and organ and blah, right? I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I like. And we also offer quiet, dimly lit, candlelight, acoustic music, and sometimes even just chanting in the darkness. Because you can rejoice in many different ways. Joy can be expressed with a lot of complexity. And so do not read this verse as a criticism if you're not, you know, in a, in a party mood to celebrate Jesus. You might be. But for others, 
the joy may be much deeper and more profound than what is just simply seen on the outside. Okay, let's keep going down in this Celebrate the Lord because Paul defines community celebration as a balance between that joy and gentleness in order to accomplish three things. And we're going to see those listed almost in these next few verses. So let's look at verses six through nine. Paul writes, do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Does that sound familiar? Verses 8 and 9. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence... And if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. And the God of peace will be with you. So the identity of the community with this combination of joy and gentleness is really meant to achieve three things. In verse 6 and 7, we see in effect that prayer will overcome any anxiety or worry in the world. In verse 8, we see that the patterns of thought that celebrate God's goodness in the world, and then in verse 9, we see kind of a style of life that embodies the gospel in order to have peace. One, two, three. So we're going to parse those out. The first, in verses 6 and 7, addresses the kind of weight and worry and anxiety and concern that people have just by being in the world. Anxiety is a part of life. I mean, every person in some way has some kind of anxiety. Now, for many, that anxiety is just this little low hum. It's kind of always there, but it's not very loud, and it really doesn't um, bother. Um, it doesn't keep you up at night most of the time or worry you during the day most of the time. It's kind of there. I mean, we all have a little bit of that, just a touch. Um, everybody has something. But for others, that kind of anxiety and worry can be huge. It can be debilitating. It can be constant and all-consuming. And everyone's on that spectrum in some way. Paul knows this. Paul understands anxiety. In the ancient world, anxiety would have been a very similar kind of problem to us. I mean, put yourself in the place of someone 2,000 years ago. They worried and were concerned about their daily lives. I mean, who was in control? They were literally afraid of staying alive today. That was just constant. That at any time, most people could effectively be arrested and killed. Kind of for no reason. With no recourse. That's stressful. This could be from the government, the people who are in control. And it could also be, in a spiritual sense, from God or the gods. If you put yourself in the place of the Greeks, right? Because Philippi is in Greece, so the Philippians would have been Greek people. Put yourself in that position, and Greek spiritual identity, including Roman, right? Basically the same thing. It's a pantheon of gods that almost seem like they're out to get us for any number of reasons. Maybe it's sensible, maybe it's not sensible. That the gods are, in, in truth, just kind of lurking around the corner waiting to come and get us. That, along with the physical reality of government control and people not having any of their own agency, that is super stressful and can cause a huge amount of anxiety. Paul's making a big, clear statement on both fronts. Paul says and has said, don't fear anything that's going to hurt the flesh, right? This is what we talked about last week. Paul's already said, all the powers of the world, don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of what can actually hurt your soul, not just your body. And which shifts him to the idea that God is near, that God cares about us, that God cares about our concerns, God cares about what we want. Paul says, pray to God about everything. Be willing to hand over everything to God. Thanksgivings, intercessions, questions, concerns, anger. It doesn't matter. God wants us. God wants all of us. That's not just the good stuff. God wants it all. 
And so it's very important for Paul that we understand God's love is total and complete. That means if you're ready to have a party, have one. If you want to curse and rail against God, rail, because God can handle it. God wants it because God wants us. So do not hold anything back. Next, Paul wants us to think about things that are worthy of praise. That's kind of powerful. I mean, consider what fills our eyes and our minds every day. Most of us, most of the time, are filled with things like social media or news stories or chit-chat or rumor mills or complaints or concerns or worries or anger most of the time. And that's life. I mean, for many people, that's just reality. But how much of that stuff that we consume that comes into our hearts and our minds every day is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable? How many of those things are worthy of praise? And that's hard. That's a really hard moment. Because when I think of all the things I see, so many of those things are not worthy of praise. And Paul, in a sense, understands our world, even though he has no concept of social media or the 24-hour news cycles or Twitter or fake news or whatever. Paul has no concept of that. But Paul gets that we can be so inundated with worry, so inundated with rumors and untruths, lies and stress and pressure, that we can forget that we need to seek after things that are worthy of praise. That's a big challenge. And what I want to make very clear here is that Paul is not asking us to ignore the world. Paul's not looking for us to go separate ourselves from all of these things, go live in a cave by ourselves and ignore it. No. Paul understands that we are in this world, but wants us not to be of this world. And in a moment like we're in right now, we can certainly sympathize with people who just drown in information, drown in memes, drown in stories and news cycles, and can find themselves so disconnected, so unmoored from God, that it's hard to even find God again. And so here we get this warning, maybe, this nudge, this command to think of things worthy of praise. So how do we do that? Well, first off, make sure every day you put your phone down, you close your computers down, that you take a break, go take a walk. Say some prayers. Listen to something enriching. Read scripture. We have to create habits in our lives where we kind of make sure that other people are not deciding everything that goes in our heart and our mind. That we have some control over making sure we find this balance. Because yes, we need to be in the world. We need to know what's going on. We need to hear voices around us and we need to honor those voices, whether they agree or disagree with us. But our entire world cannot be only that. We've got to balance that out with something that is life-giving, something that is worthy of praise. And when we strike that balance, which is gonna be different for everybody, when we strike that balance, Paul is saying we will actually be able to find peace, which takes us to verse 9 in the third section here, which is live as an embodiment of the gospel, and you will find peace. You know, verse 9 can, if we're not careful, be sort of like a logic loop, right? If you find peace, you'll find God, and if you find God, you'll find peace, and if you find peace, you'll find God, and we can kind of get caught in this loop, except... It's true. 
the more we seek after God, the more we find God. And the more we find God, the more we're able to seek after this peace that passes all understanding. The more that that peace will settle into us over time will actually transform us, mold us, change us into the person that I think a lot of us would love to become. And I pray that most of you are actually in this becoming. But not everybody will be. And we can be thrown out of this loop, right? This can be a nice, virtuous cycle. Seek God, find peace, find peace. You're able to seek God better, more and more. And it's a spin up in this cycle. But something like a wrongful death, the loss of a loved one, a pandemic, the economy, whatever, can break us out of that cycle. Know if it has. And don't be satisfied to let the world break you out of that kind of virtuo, right? That moment where, or that experience that helps us get better and better over time. Get yourself back in there. Only we can choose to do that. And what used to work for us may not work for us anymore. That's part of the community. If you know someone in this community who has kind of fallen off that wagon, we are the ones who can help get them back on. We're going to talk about individualism here in a minute, and that's going to be a little bit more clear. Um, but Paul's encouragement here would be toward peace, toward that striving for God. And when we do, we actually do reach that peace. All right, I've got a couple comments. Um, so Madeline says, Comment on verse 2, reconciliation has never been easy for me, um, but I'm beginning to often admit that sometimes I'm amazingly wrong. <laughs> Guess that's why God says to always pray. I love that. Some, I'm able to admit that sometimes I'm amazingly wrong. What a great phrase. Um, I think that we can all, I, Madeline, I'm going to speak for myself, I can certainly understand what it's like to come to the realization that you have been amazingly wrong. That's wonderful. I think that seeking forgiveness, apologizing for wrong is so healthy for us. It is so good to create a habit in which we can apologize. We can find the imperfections in ourselves. We can admit to being amazingly wrong. And I'll tell you why. Other people are worth it. Other people are worth us admitting when we have been amazingly wrong, and we are worth it. Because when we hold on to the, a pridefulness or an egotism around our own rightness, we are damaging ourselves. You do not deserve to hurt yourself by white-knuckling your, your rightness all the way. Sometimes we're amazingly wrong, and admitting it is how we actually achieve that kind of peace. Um, oh, John, that's funny. Um, yes, the problem is not the problem. The problem is your attitude about the problem. That's great. Um, attitude is like perspective, right? Perspective is everything. Bad things happen, yes. There are problems in the world, yes. But when we see, when we receive the bad and the hurt and the heartbreak and the problems as ends unto themselves, we are defeated. But when we receive all of that as moments to shape us in the future, we actually begin to see the optimistic solution to the problems and no one person is ever going to have the right solution. But as a community, when we wrestle and we are honest with each other and we forgive when we are hurt and we ask forgiveness when we hurt, we can all get better together. All right, let's jump to the third section of today's lesson. And this is the good stuff. So you heard me say before that Philippians 4.13 is one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. Here's this secret strength. Let's look. We're going to do verse 10 through 13 together. All right. 
I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We'll pause there. Paul is in a tough spot. If you can imagine Paul's position, he's done a lot of work, a lot of good work, but he is now in prison. Paul is in captivity. He cannot travel. He cannot do the stuff that he has been hoping to do his whole life. Mm, That's wrong. Not his whole life, but since his conversion. Um, Paul's life has been rough. Everything he's done, has it's been a lot of moving. It's been a lot of insecurity. Um, Sometimes he's well-received. Most often he is not well-received. He has been run out of multiple towns. He has been arrested and imprisoned multiple times. And Paul is there, understanding all of the pain and the heartbreak of life. There are few of us, if any, if I may be so bold, if any, who actually understand the hardships that Paul has gone through. And yet Paul, in that moment, is saying to the Philippians, I'm strong because of God. Now, I need to note, this is a big deal. This is a massive theological statement. And it comes off very easily, right? I mean, how many of us have seen coffee mugs and plaques and little, you know, cross stitches and whatever with that verse? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But let's really pull that apart to see what it means. It sounds nice, but I'm going to guess some of us don't actually like it. Okay, so Paul's in a tough spot, and Paul does two remarkable things. Paul thanks the Philippians for their gift. We're going to start there just so we can note that. The Philippians have sent a gift with Epaphroditus. We, we know that part of Paul's letter back to the Philippians is a thank you for that gift. And so Paul's received this gift, and we can presume, I think probably safely, that this is a big gift, right? They're not going to go through all the trouble of sending Epaphroditus all the way to wherever Paul is in prison to give him a small gift, right? They're going to be giving him a big gift. And so Paul needs to say thank you, because that is generous, and it is kind. And Paul wants to be very clear that although he's grateful for their gift, He's learned not to expect more. He's learned not to need more. He has learned to be content with whatever he has, content with whatever he has, and that he's found the secret to being content. He can do all things through God who strengthens him. He can face anything because God is with him and gives him strength. Now let's talk about what that really means. We are American Christians. Actually, I think many of us are Christian Americans. You can think on that separately. Um, But one way or the other, we are Christians here in this country. We naturally absorb the values of our culture and our country. And one of those clear American values is individualism. That kind of individualism undergirds everything. It undergirds our justice system, our economy, our educational system. We have, in almost every turn, this sense of, hey, you want it? Go get it. You want more? Work harder. You fall? Get back up. We celebrate individual achievement. We celebrate individual strength. And so it is very understandable if we are slightly confused about where our strength comes from. For most of us, in that thoughtless, innocent way, we would say we are strong or we are weak. When we achieve, we did it. 
When we fail, we did it. Paul is saying something completely opposite. Paul is saying that his strength does not come from him. His strength comes from God. And let me tell you, when we think of Christian disciples who have done a lot, I dare you to find anybody who has in a very short period of time made as much effect on the Christian world as Paul. So if anybody has got enough to be proud of their own efforts, it's Paul. And instead, what Paul says is, all of the stuff that I have done has been done because God is in me. Every time I succeed, every time I achieve, every time something good happens is because the strength in me is the strength of God. That is completely opposite, 180 degrees away from how most of us have been taught to think. There is a humility in that message. And that humility is so incredibly countercultural to our culture that we need to sit with this. I would encourage you, if anything, from Philippians over this last month has, you know, sticks with you and rolls around in your mind and in your heart, it might be this basic idea. Our strength does not come from us. Our rightness and wrongness is part of God in us. That means that other people have that God in them too. And we can be very quick to judge. We can be very quick to blame. We can be very quick to put responsibility on individuals. And I think we need to be a little more careful about that. Because that's really not what Paul is saying to us here. This is a challenge, all right? Understand that this kind of thing might make us uncomfortable. But if we're honest, this may be the most comforting idea in Scripture. This idea that we do not have to do this alone. That God is in us that God supports us, that God strengthens us, that God carries us. And we have that strength in everything that we can choose to do. It's not bad. All right, section four. Final closing section of chapter four. I'm calling true game. We're going to look at verses 15 through 20. Right, so let's flip to 15 through 20. And I should say, I wish we just kind of pause, let everything settle, give everyone a minute to think about what they, you know, how to express a question or a comment, um, because these are such massive, big ideas. And I'm sorry, it's a little weird to kind of sit in digital silence. Um, so just if you want to check, you know, close me out for a minute and ask a question or make a comment about anything that we've already discussed, please do, because they are very welcome. And hopefully we'll have a few minutes at the end for us to just do a little bit of Q&A. And so if you've got a question that you've been wondering about anything, um, but even the whole of Philippians, go ahead and throw those um, into the comment thread or send an email to Monica so that I can kind of tee those up so we can do a bit of Q&A in the last few minutes of today's class. So let's turn to verse 15. Paul writes again, you Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the manner of giving and receiving except you alone. For when, I'm sorry, for even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. I have been paid in full and have more than enough. I am fully satisfied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will fully satisfy every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul makes very clear here that 
the Philippians are doing this right. And they have from the beginning. Paul's gratitude for them is immense. And Paul in this moment says, thank you for being this kind of community. Thank you for being generous. Thank you for being considerate and compassionate and supportive. The Philippians were the first to get behind Paul in what we might call Europe, right? Paul had planted churches around the Middle East, you know, up into Syria, Lebanon, and into Turkey. But something in Paul's mind says when he shifted into Greece, that was the real shift, right? There was almost a cultural similarity in the places where he planted churches first. But when he goes into Greece, he's going into uncharted territories. He's going into, at that point in time, the great philosophical tradition of the world, this, this cultural, um, intellectual powerhouse. And so that the Philippians were as generous and as supportive as they were at the very beginning is significant, huge for Paul. And he is so very grateful. But Paul's message here has a theological twist that is really important. You saw it in verse 17. Paul says very quickly, hey, thanks for your gift. I really like it. I appreciate that you've thought of me. But you need to know that I don't need your gift. But I am so glad you have given because, look at verse 17, I seek the profit that accumulates to your account. That's massive. Paul is saying, do not make your gifts because of my need. Instead, make your gifts because of your need. You've heard me say this at St. Michael. We, the church does not need you to give as much as you need to give. We in our human condition change and are transformed the more tangible our works can be. And so in this moment, Paul is making a very, very important idea. I know I say this all the time, but every few verses there's something important. And this, this is a big deal. Because Paul's saying the work that we do together, the generosity that we share, when we give of ourselves, and especially when we give of ourselves beyond what we think is safe and reasonable to give, that's when our generosity changes us. And yes, of course, when we give and are generous, we benefit others. Of course we do. And that is so important. But it is not, not as important as how it changes us. That is, again, a very countercultural way of looking at generosity, and especially for Episcopalians. Episcopalians have gotten backwards on this, and they've been backwards for a long time. There is this sense in the Episcopal Church especially, but in many mainline Christian churches, that generosity is meant to be charitable and philanthropic. No, no. We help other people because we have been transformed and changed. When we give, the first change happens to us. And in that giving and that generosity, we begin to effectively change and impact others around us. Of course we do. But the very first priority is our soul's. Do not give because you want to be philanthropic. Do not give because you have some sense of charity. Give because you seek to be changed. Give because you seek to be transformed. Because when you are genuinely changed and transformed, when you genuinely commit to this discipleship of Christ, the whole world around you changes too. This idea of salvation and works goes first to our faithfulness and then to the expression of our faithfulness. We, when we are changed, will not be able to keep 
from doing good. If all we do is good for the sake of doing good, it's not enough. God does not want us to be do-gooders. God wants us to be disciples. And when we are truly disciples, the good will happen. That is Paul's message here. And that's what he points to the Philippians and says, you get it and you're doing it. And by sending me this gift and supporting me throughout time and supporting one another and supporting the community around you, you are being transformed into the mind of Christ. You are seeking after God and you are discovering that peace that passes all understanding and you are being transformed. You are being saved from this world and are saving others too. Man, it's good. That's good stuff. That's effectively the end of this letter. Paul then goes on for a few verses to say, bye, but that's not necessarily as theologically important as these verses. Um, and so, encourage questions or comments. Um, we've got a few minutes where we can handle a few things about Philippians. I've got one here. Um, says a someone has suggested um, a little book called The 4 8 principle. And the author is Newbery. I am not familiar with that little book, um, but it talks about changing ourselves from the inside out. Um, what is in our heart is what comes out of our mouths. Ooh, that's good. I like the four. Okay. The four, eight principle um, might be a nice book. Um, I'll read it. Um, and I'll see if that can kind of help influence some of the ways that I talk about this too. Um, so finally, we have come to the end of Philippians. Uh, I have loved this study, loved being with you all, even at a distance. Um, I, I saw one comment earlier that says, why can't this go on forever? Um, which I, I am very grateful for that. This is one of my favorite things that I do um, during the week. And I hope, I, I am grateful that it seems to make an impact um, on each of you as well. Because studying this and Thinking about how I want to express myself and what do I want to say and how do I want to say it is so very formative to me, right? I've read this stuff before, of course, but I've never taught Philippians. And even though I could say to you, there are a few little verses here and there that are so impactful and so important, speaking about them is an amazing way to really make those verses impact us deeply um, and so I would encourage you to do the same. You know, you have had, you've been on this journey with me um, in Philippians. What about this sticks with you? What about this kind of anchors inside your heart and mind enough for you to tell someone else? So perhaps this is my ask of you over the next couple months um, while we are separated from this Bible study is go tell someone something about what you've learned um, what has challenged you, questions that you are pondering, go increase the community around you. Find those friends that can help you struggle and wrestle and really get yourselves in a higher formation, right? Becoming that person that God made us to be and that I think we all want to be. And I think that's a good, good way to leave this. Um, a quick note, we will be back next school year or this coming school year. Um, we start after Labor Day in September and we will be looking at apocalyptic literature. Now many of you know that a, a year ago when I asked what do people want to study, the number one thing I got was Revelation. And so I said a year ago, we need to start with Genesis before we go into Revelation. It will make so much more sense if we have a real solid anchor in Genesis before we flip to Revelation. Revelation's a slightly shorter book, so it would be a little, I think it'd be a little too much to kind of stretch it out over an entire school year. So what I've done is I've tacked on Daniel to the beginning. So when we come back in the fall, we're going to start with a few weeks on Daniel before we get to Revelation, because those are the two apocalyptic books in our Bible. And I think it's really important to kind of get an apocalyptic book from the Old Testament and an apocalyptic book from the New Testament, the apocalyptic book from the New Testament, um, because I think they will kind of feed each other in a tradition that has gone on for hundreds and hundreds of years, 
and help us better understand what Revelation is actually truly getting at. And so I look forward to seeing you all back in September after Labor Day. Um, if you are not a part of our email list, then I encourage you to either put your email address right here in the comments, or um, if you want to keep it a little more private, um, email Monica Rosser. Her email address is here in the comments. Send her your name and your email address. We'll add you to our list, which has hundreds of people on it. And we'll make sure that you get the schedule loud and clear, nice and clear, when we will start back again in September. Um, and I, you know, I'll cross my fingers, we can be in person, but good grief. I mean, yesterday with more than 5,000 cases of COVID in Texas, I just don't know. Um, so pray for it, cross your fingers, ask God, and maybe, maybe we'll be back together in person in September. If we are not, we'll be right back here digitally together. Until then, you're in my prayers and I appreciate yours. God bless.